The Study Smarter series is brought to you in part by Med School Coach. Have you ever wondered when is the best time to take a practice exam and how should you interpret the results? Well, later in this episode, hear from Med School Coach's Sahil Mehta to discuss when is the optimal time to take a practice test and how you should take the results and apply it to your dedicated study period. Go to medschoolcoach.com slash ITB for a special offer and to learn more about how you can get your own personalized study plan, connect with an experienced mentor, and help you increase your USMLE Step 1 scores by more than 40 points. Welcome to the Inside the Boards podcast, the podcast dedicated to helping you learn to think like a question writer so you can study smarter, not harder, and succeed in medical school. In this episode, we have med school coach's own Emil Gordon and ITB's Stuart Bryant discussing some hematology questions with thanks to the Open Osmosis platform for providing the content. And don't forget, if you want an extra boost during your dedicated step one preparation time, check out Inside the Board's All Audio QBank. You can find a link in the show notes or go to our website, insidetheboards.com, for more info. Podcast listeners can get an additional 25% off a subscription by using the code PODCAST at checkout with content from Lecturio, Osmosis, and online meded, ITB's All Audio QBank is the perfect supplement to your med school and board preparation and doesn't require any extra time. Thanks for listening and happy studying. All right, so we're here with another Med School Coach Minute with Sahil Mehta, who is the founder and CEO of Med School Coach, the premier medical education tutoring and admissions consulting company that has helped nearly 9,000 students get into and get through medical school. All right, so what about practice exams? When should somebody take one and like throughout their dedicated study period, I mean, and then how should they interpret the results? Yeah, so, you know, practice exams, Patrick, I think are obviously important in the entire scheme of things because they help us judge where we stand and where we need to go. I think there's a couple of important things about practice tests in general. The first is that unless you take it as a true practice test, I think the overall results are somewhat useless in the sense of if you've taken it over four days, that's not how you're going to take USMLA step one. And so your total score is really not indicative of what you may get. Remember, things like fatigue play a huge role in uh, in test taking. And so you really want to simulate your environment as much as possible. That said, you also don't want to dedicate hours every single day to a practice test because that takes away from the time that you're learning content. So typically, I think it's important to take a practice test up front because it lays the groundwork. And your score on that is completely irrelevant in my mind. 
what you want to understand is how am I doing? How am I understanding the topics? What kind of questions are asked on step one? And then maybe, okay, hey, I really nailed every single biochemistry question. I don't necessarily need to study super hard on biochemistry, but I missed every single immunology question. I need to sit down and study immunology real hard. It gives you that sort of framework uh, on what to do. At least that's your first practice test. Then as the weeks go on, what I say is that let's not take a practice test again for a couple of weeks until we've learned or really honed in on some of the material. And then let's dive back into it. So if you have eight weeks, maybe your next practice test is at T minus five weeks before the actual exam. That should give you now you're starting to get a little bit of an indication of where you may score. Obviously, you've got a long way to go before the actual exam. Then you take another one maybe three weeks before. Now you're getting even closer. And remember, on the practice test, the other important thing is not just taking the test, but utilizing the test as a learning resource, meaning you go back and review every single question, whether you got it right or whether you got it wrong. Reviewing the question will help you understand, again, how USMLE thinks and all the content behind it. So even in the questions you get right, if you review the explanations and you review the little tidbits of the wrong answers, it's going to embed in your mind why that was a wrong answer, because that's going to be the right answer choice to some other question down the line. And is there a time at which like, it's, it's too late to take a practice exam? Taking one is only going to psychologically wound you? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that definitely taking one within the last week is probably a bad idea. You know, at that point, you should just be refreshing your mind and, and in some ways clearing your mind of any anxiety of the test and, and be ready to go. So really, I would say if you're taking one approximately two weeks before, that should give you a pretty good indication of where you stand and where you want to go from there. Uh, I wouldn't take one in the last week you know, maybe seven, 10 days before your actual test, if you really want a final indication of where you stand and or you need to understand if you need to postpone your test, that would be the latest that I would take. And how should students decide that question, whether or not to postpone an exam? Yeah, so I think that it's a multifactorial question that that relies on a few different ideas. The first being, what is my goal or what am I hoping to get out of this? Again, if you're looking and you say, you know what, the only thing that I could see myself doing as a physician is orthopedic surgery, and that's all I want to do, and that's all I've ever wanted to do, and you're scoring a 210 on your USMLE Step 1 practice test, then you probably need more time in order to increase your score. Along the same token, though, just because you have more time doesn't mean you're necessarily going to increase your score, right? So you have to think about how is my studying been going? Have I put my all into it or have there been other factors that have distracted me from studying or maybe not allowed me to study fully? Do I just need more time to understand the content? Like is a few more weeks of content review going to get me to where I want to be? Or is it thing where I, I know all the content cold, but I'm just having trouble understanding the test? And so, you know, all these different questions, I think, go into understanding if you should postpone the test or not. For most people, if they've set that goal, let's say eight weeks prior, they should be at that level by the time they're ready to actually take the test. And I usually don't recommend postponing it unless there's something really extenuating that, that's come up in the meantime. All right. Thank you. To get 10% off MedSchool Coach's tutoring services, go to medschoolcoach.com slash ITB. Welcome to the Inside the Boards podcast. 
I'm Stuart Bryant, and I'm joined today with Emil Gordon from Med School Coach, who's going to be walking me through a few hematology questions. And tell us a little bit about yourself, Emil. <laughs> um, yeah, my name is Emil. I, I go to the University of Pennsylvania. I'm a fourth year. I'm going into radiology, and uh, I love tutoring uh, step one. All right. Yeah. <laughs> Congrats on matching and having that uh, next step set up for you. Thanks very much. Soon to be you. <laughs> Hopefully one day. I have a ways to go, though. <laughs> or it feels like it gets further and further away the more I, I approach this test. Um, All right, definitely. <laughs> but yeah, yeah. And I know this kind of material is very difficult uh, for a lot of people. So any like basic tips and things from the that kind of like tutoring approach that you would normally bring is going to be super helpful for me and our listeners just to help us see what, you know, maybe little Mm -hmm. shortcuts we can make and things like that. Yeah, I Um, agree with you. I think this topic can be difficult, but um, with a systematic approach, I think it can be one of the easiest. And uh, you don't have to know too many facts to figure out a lot of the answers, which is nice. Right, right. So I'll go ahead and read through the first question and we'll go from there. How about that? Sounds great. Okay. So first question. A 45-year-old man comes to the primary care office because of a three-month history of progressive fatigue, pain in his abdomen, and sexual dysfunction. Blood is sent for analysis, and results show a decrease in serum haptoglobin, as well as a normocytic anemia with pancytopenia. Sucrose hemolysis test was positive. The patient's condition is most likely attributed to which of the following? All right, and then I have a few different double barrel answer choices. So A is intrinsic hemolytic anemia with extravascular hemolysis. B, extrinsic hemolytic anemia with intravascular hemolysis. C is intrinsic hemolytic anemia with intravascular hemolysis. And finally, D is extrinsic hemolytic anemia with extravascular hemolysis. Wow, that's a mouthful. All right, definitely a mouthful. <laughs> yeah. So the the this is actually perfect because this identifies uh, kind of the entire way I approach all of hemonc, basically. So um, the first thing I love to do, uh, and I'm sure you've mentioned it to your listeners before, is what is the flavor of the question? Um, when I tutor students, I say this should come to you in like 0.5 seconds. What is the flavor of the question? I see the answers, and I see that. Basically, they want me to say, is this a differentiate between an intrinsic hemolytic anemia? Like, is there a problem with the red cell itself? And where is it happening, either in the vessels or is it happening in the extravascular space? So the, the spleen, basically. So there's a lot in the question, but the way I personally would approach it in the beginning is first, where, where is the uh, hemolysis taking place? And uh, they give me some clues. They say that there's decreased serum haptoglobin, which binds uh, hemoglobin in the serum. If that's decreased, it suggests that it's an intravascular process. And basically, uh, the other thing that you would see if something was intravascular or extravascular, if it's intravascular, you might question might also say there is a red urine because there's hemoglobinuria. Basically, from that fact, they could probably take out that this is an intravascular hemolysis. 
then where do we go from there? And there's also pancytopenia, which we'll talk about in a second. But if it's intravascular and there's a problem with the red cell itself, we should find some other clue in the question. And it says, so sucrose hemolysis test is positive. To me, that suggests that something's wrong with the red cell. Personally, I don't exactly know what that test is, but I do know there's two sucrose hemolysis tests in step one or first aid that I've read about. And one is an osmotic fragility test, which right. breaks up red cells. And uh, the other one that I know about is one that activates complement on, on red cell surfaces. So both of those are actually problems with the red cell if they're positive. So those osmotic fragility test, I think, is for uh, hereditary spherocytosis, which is the problem with the red cell membrane. And that's cleared extravascularly, which we know that's not the case here. And then this one, if it activates uh, complement on the red cells, it's referring to a disease that we do need to know about called PNH paroxysmal nocturnal uh, hematuria. So since that's positive, I already know that the answer would be uh, an intrinsic hemolytic anemia with an intravascular hemolysis. The last thing I want to do is, you know, does it make sense that other things that they told me about that seem irrelevant, like progressive fatigue, pain in the abdomen, sexual dysfunction? I do know that a lot, you know, a lot of my students forget that uh, PNH is also a clotting disorder. So when the red cells lice, they can actually uh, lead to increased clotting factors. Or these clots can ca cause mes mesenteric ischemia and uh, erectile dysfunction. So that would basically be the way I would approach this, this question. And for studying, I would obviously look at what are the other causes, what, what things can cause an intrinsic hemolytic anemia with an extravascular hemolysis and so on. Right, right. And, and <laughs> that was a flawless uh, breakdown of this entire question content. Uh, <laughs> so that, that was really well done. And I actually, I don't have much to add to that. You know, when I read this question, so I start when I read a question by reading what the actual question here is. And it's, this patient's condition is most likely attributed to which? And I do like to look at the answer choices. I know some people are against that because it, it will ultimately guide what I'm going to look for and how I'm going to rule it out. So here with the intrinsic, extrinsic, intravascular, extravascular, I need to, you know, basically add weight to one of those or the other to narrow down my answer choices. Like you said, with the serum haptoglobin, by having it decrease, I'm concerned with an intravascular process. And then, like you said, with the sucrose hemolysis test, that's an intrinsic process for that to be positive, right? Mm -hmm. and, and when I read the sucrose hemolysis test, I did think of, you know, like spherocytosis first uh, with the osmotic fragility test. But, you know, here's where, you know, I can learn a little bit and find out that PNH also has this characteristic, which I had forgotten since I, since my heme block. Uh, me too. When you mentioned it, uh, I was very confused. So I was like, oh, there are two. <laughs> it's not the yeah. one you normally think of first. One thing that I do want to also advise against is sometimes when you do see the flavor of the questions, I found myself when I was doing step one, I would already, I would think I would already know the answer because the question, the answers do bias you. So being cognizant of that when you do look at the answer choices first, um, don't get biased by them. Oh, certainly. But, you know, that's sort of a game you have to play on an individual level. And there are times where I've been talked out of an answer because I've been biased by the question. So you definitely have to be careful about that. You know, I think I 
classic one for me was a com- a comparison of Vibrio and Campylobacter. And the answer choices, or if you read the question, you would be like, it's obviously Campylobacter. And all the answer choices were different types of Vibrio. <laughs> and if you read the answer choices, you were like, oh my gosh, I need to know which of these Vibrios it is. Right. <laughs> and then you go running off and trying to figure that out. And you're like, no, it, it was just Campylobacter. <laughs> um, you have to be careful. Yeah. So it, it, that that's a perfect case of where that could happen. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, it, it also, I guess when you know it from reading the question, that's helpful. But when you're having to figure out these different combinations of things, there you're really going to want to know what it is you're comparing and contrasting. Uh, for each of those answer choices, right? Exactly. One thing that I can see people falling into a hole by this question is that when they mention fatigue, pain, and abdomen, and sexual dysfunction, the disease that does come to mind first, if I just read that and not the other things, would be sickle cell anemia, right? which can cause not necessarily clotting, but the vessels themselves can be occluded by sickled red cells. You know, the big difference behind that one is those... uh, abnormal red cells in sickle cell are extra vascularly cleared by the spleen. And you don't expect to see something like a decreased serum haptoglobin. No, and that would have been answer choice A uh, with an intrinsic hemolytic anemia with extravascular hemolysis. And with that, I'm not sure that, you know, you would have a three-month history. But, you know, sure. there again, just with the the signs and symptoms, you might, if you read that and then you jump to sickle cell, and then you found the answer choice and moved on, you would probably think you had that question right. Exactly. Um, and one thing that I love to tell my students too is at this point, when you're taking this test, you've gone through so many year world questions, you kind of already have a feeling for what the disease is. If they're not mentioning things like since birth or don't have a spleen or African-American, it's probably not going to be something like sickle cell an- anemia. Right. And, and that's where that like I think epidemiology can really help you with a lot of these questions. And that's where the first sentence really can guide you with what is going to be an, a possible answer. You know, where you have here a 45-year-old man and a three-month history versus 12-year-old African-American mm-hmm. boy who presents after trouble with uh, fatigue during recess or something. Okay, anything else we want to add to this or we want to move on? Do you want to add anything else? No, I think I'm, I think we're good. Yeah. Okay. I I agree. You did it really. That was amazing. Uh, (laughs) Kudos to that. We could probably call it a day with just that question. (laughs) (laughs) Um, All right. So next up, we have a 14 year old girl who comes to the pediatrician's office because of recurrent nose bleeding. Her medical history is relevant for heavy menstrual bleeding and easy bruising. Upon further interrogation, the patient mentions that she always bleeds when brushing her teeth. Physical exam shows purple discolored spots on her right leg that do not blanch on applying pressure and petechial rash over her face. Her temperature is normal. She's tachycardic. Respirations are normal and blood pressure is 90 over 70. Laboratory studies show moderate thrombocytopenia with a prolonged bleeding time. A peripheral blood smear shows large amorphous basophilic objects, roughly the size of red blood cells. Which of the following abnormalities is most likely to cause this finding? A, vitamin C deficiency. 
B, deficiency of glycoprotein 1B, C, vitamin K deficiency, or D, IgG antibodies against GP2B3A. All right, take us through this. All right, so again, you know, I don't want to belabor the point, but if you're taking a test quickly, you quickly want to know what they want you to differentiate. So when I hear the answer choices, I think um, they want me to decide between a platelet abnormality, factor deficiency, or some random disease like vitamin D deficiency, which can also cause bleeding. When I start off the question, even before starting it off, I know this is a bleeding question. And it starts off, you know, 14-year-old girl. First thing that comes to mind is a genetic problem. She has a lot of bleeding sequelae, like nosebleeds, menstrual bleeding. Doesn't really help me answer the question. Easy bruising. And then it gets to something like petechiae, which tends to point towards um, a platelet deficiency. And then probably the most key thing here uh, would be the moderate thrombocytopenia and a prolonged bleeding time. So when someone tells me that someone is someone has a prolonged bleeding time, I know that the initial problem with or the the initial inciting event to stop bleeding is not working well. And that's a platelet. So clots are almost always platelet first and then coagulation cascades second. So this bleeding abnormality, right off the bat, I'm going to rule out things like vitamin K deficiency because that is a clotting or that's a coagulation disorder because no clotting uh, factors are created. The other thing is, um, without any mentioning of like curling hair, hypertrophy gums, or uh, like dietary deficiency, um, vitamin C would be very low on my list, which leads me to the old uh, platelet uh, abnormalities. You have listed here uh, the glycoprotein 1B deficiency and also antibodies against glycoprotein 2B and 3A. It can be difficult to know what those molecules are exactly on the, on the platelet. Um, I think it's important to know them, but you can answer the question without really understanding that immediately. The antibodies against glycoprotein 2B and 3A, I know that that's a platelet molecule, but that would be um, in a disorder called ITP or acute idiopathic thrombocytopenic purpura. And in this question, they mentioned to us that uh, there's a moderate thrombocytopenia. And you actually don't generally start to bleed with diseases like ITP and unless you have quite a severe um, a thrombocytopenia. So something like 50,000 platelets or less. The other things that that would be an answer choice would be maybe there was a viral infection. But I do want to mention that this does occur in girls that are young that didn't take it off the plate for me. So honestly, without even knowing what it is, B would be the answer, um, a deficiency of glycoprotein 1B. And then, you know, just to go on that, that's actually a disease known as bernard Soulier disease. It makes sense with the rest of the question. This is how I would answer it, that this molecule actually binds to or helps the platelet bind to endothelium indirectly by binding, you know, the von Willebrand uh, factor. She's young. A genetic deficiency is, is on the table. So I think that would be the best answer here. And that's perfect. Uh, and when you're looking at this, um, you, you narrowed it down ideally. You know, something like a vitamin deficiency, you know, might cause a, a, like an abnormal um, PT or increased PT with like vitamin K deficiency, but that's not really what we're seeing here. We're seeing a prolonged bleeding time. 
Now, exactly. when I look at this, this last sentence tells you about a peripheral smear with this ginormous platelet. And, and we actually have a picture of the platelet, uh, and I tried to break it down into word form for everyone. But it, what it is, it, it it's just a giant platelet, right? And it's an mm-hmm. aggregation of actual small platelets, I think, uh, because of the deficiency. Now, those large platelets are, I think, pathognomonic for Bernard Soulier. And if you if you happen to have that bit of knowledge sitting there uh, at your disposal, a deficiency of glycoprotein 1B is definitely going to jump out for you. Now, that's a really good point because, um, so if you do happen to know exactly how these integrins work, the 1B and the 2B3A, um, the 2B3A is actually the molecule that uh, helps platelets uh, congregate together or it binds platelets together. So if you have antibodies against that, this would be off the table. You would not see a giant platelet. Right. Um, so, yeah. And they, they wouldn't be able to uh, congregate like that, or, or at least not in that large of a mass. It, it's kind of funny. You see these pictures of like uh, an IgM or an IgG molecule, like connecting to red blood cells. And like, that's totally not possible with the size of an IgG uh, antibody and the size of red blood cells, but you, you'll see these diagrams and it'll just be like an antibody connecting these two red blood cells and mm-hmm. causing them to aggregate quote unquote. And they're like, that's not really how that works. Um, now with something like an IgM that can be possible, uh, but it, <laughs> I digress. Let's see, you, you know, the, the large platelets, that's a, a part of Bernard Sulio. I don't know about when you were learning about these, but at my school, we really focused on differentiating Bernard Soulier from Glanzmann's thrombocytopenia. <laughs> and what we were talking about with that almost always was this thing called the platelet function test. Do you remember this or like the platelet aggregation test? Yeah, I th- hopefully I think so. Um, so are you talking about the Ristocetin test? Yeah, it's a mixing study where you you have these, uh, uh, you you place the uh, serum with these different compounds like ristocetin or uh, epinephrine or ADP, and you see whether or not platelets aggregate. Yeah, that's a really that's a really good point. I now, think so. I think uh, what the ristocetin does is causes Bernard Soulier to express GP one B. Is that correct? I'm not sure. I, I, I only remember learning the differences, and I remember learning only one of them because it was so complicated for me to keep straight. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I think so. Ristocetin, what it does is, and they may ask you a question about this, that it actually activates von Willebrand factor. This might be a different, actually, a different point than you're trying to make. But Ristocetin test uh, is a high-yield fact where it activates von Willebrand factor to bind GP1B. So I think it causes von Willebrand factor to unfold to bind GP1B. And if you don't have that, it would be negative um, in Bernard Soulier. Mm-hmm. So basically failure of agglutination with the Ristocetin assay. Um, and I think what you're mentioning is that there are other molecules that activate platelets, such as ADP, um, I think calcium and some other molecules that 
when platelets get activated, usually in, in vivo by the GP1B, but also by ADP and calcium in a test tube. If you use those molecules, they'll express GP2B3A. And if they can't do that because they have Klansman's thrombosthenia, then uh, that test would be abnormal. Mm-hmm. Right. So uh, just to get it straight um, in my head, I think with the, you'll get a bunch of, for this kind of question, you would get a bunch of these different molecules mixed with platelets and you would see whether or not they would aggregate. For Bernard Soulier, ristocetin would fail to aggregate the platelets because they have a messed up receptor. So everything, the other molecules are capable of causing this aggregation, but as you described with with ristocetin, because of the way it works, it wouldn't cause platelet aggregation. Whereas with Glanzman's thrombosphenia, <laughs> yeah, I always mix that up, um, you don't see aggregation with these other products, but then ristocetin, when applied, can cause aggregation of the platelets. And that was the only thing I wanted to bring up, just because I, I feel like that was what my school really emphasized, and I wanted to make sure we talked about it at least, though this question comes at this from a very different perspective. I, I think that's actually a really good point. And in fact, now that you bring it up, I think it might be high yield. So glansman's thrombosthenia, you know, when, it, when, when uh, platelets are normally activated by ADP, they express the GP2B3A, which is deficient in glansman's thrombosthenia. And that's actually how a lot of drugs work. All the drugs that end in grel, clopidogrel, prasigrel, and there's another one called teclopidine. They actually inhibit the ADP-induced expression of this molecule, um, and that's how we can actually use that for uh, heart attack prevention or people with uh, sense. Mm. So it's a clinically relevant fact. Yeah, uh, I'm glad I brought it up then. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I, I think that covers uh, a good bit of what I wanted to talk about with this. And we will stop there with part one. Join us next time for part two. And please consider leaving us a review on iTunes. This really helps us with the rankings in iTunes and will help get the word out about our resource and help us continue to keep providing you this content for free. Thank you for listening. Thanks to Rao Reynolds and Enter Shikari for letting us use the track Anesthetist off the 2015 album The Mind Sweep. We'll see you back next week for some more high-yield learning.